This morning, we are going back to Romans 9 uh, for our text, and so go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 946 this morning, 946. As unusual as it has been, I have really loved going through Romans 9 as our Advent series. I never would have imagined uh, Romans 9 would have made a great Advent series. I've loved it. I hope you have too. Uh, It's been encouraging to me, right? So Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. We believe that around 2,000 years ago, God invaded humanity. God became human. God was born of a woman. I mean, as insane and as crazy as that is, that the creator became part of his creation. That the God who created humanity in his likeness became one, created in his own likeness. And he didn't do it by arriving as a full-grown man, as a king, on a chariot, with warriors and trumpets. He came as a baby. He came as a child. He came into humanity the same way every human comes into humanity, through the humility of birth. And at the time, his arrival was unseen. It was unnoticed by the broader world. The reality was no one cared about an infant being born in Bethlehem to impoverished parents. No one cared about this insignificant child born in a backwater community in an insignificant nation in the broader world. But the reality is his arrival was like a meteor that impacts the earth and would change it forever. It was cataclysmic. Now, it wasn't like, you know, a meteor that leaves a giant crater in the earth and creates a giant dust cloud and, and, and you know, chokes out the dinosaurs and stuff like that or creates a global flood or however you want to. Not, we're not getting into that. Uh, but, but either way, it was cataclysmic. It changed all life on earth. When Jesus came to earth, there was no big explosion, no immediate and obvious effect. But it was the most significant event in human history. The rock of ages became flesh and blood. He was born Emmanuel. And you're like, that's not his name. No, that's his title. Emmanuel means God with us. He was Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us. He was born a human with all of the dignity and indignity that that implies. He was born frail. He was born humble. And then he lived a human life, just like us, but not like us at all. He went through his day just like we go through our day, but he went through his day without sin. In fact, he lived the life we should have lived. And then he died. He died an excruciating death at the hands of the Romans, one of the worst forms of execution ever created by man. But he didn't simply die at the hands of the Romans or at the rejection of the religious leaders of his day. He died intentionally as a sacrifice. 
He was born to die. He was born on mission. That he might become the embodiment of our sin, that he might become our substitute in judgment so that we could become his partner in blessing, so that he could succeed where every other human had failed and then offer up his success as a sacrifice that we might receive what we could never earn, that we might claim a blessing that we would never have a right to claim on our own, that we might be redeemed and restored, that he might, in fact, recreate humanity, build it from the ground up, no longer defined by the failure of the first Adam, it would now be marked by the obedience, the righteousness, and the glory of the last Adam. The human who succeeded where every other human failed and then willingly offered himself up that every other human might receive what he had earned. He came like a meteor. And like a meteor, the impact is still being affected today. That rock, man, when he, when he impacted the human story, he divided human history, right? There's a reason that we divide human history by B.C. and A.D., and I know we've, we've changed the terminology, and we no longer talk about before Christ and Anto Domini, right? We, we've changed the terminology, but that doesn't change the reality of the impact. Human history is marked by the arrival, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he continues to divide humanity today. As we're going to see in our text this morning, he continues to be a rock. A rock that will either cause us to stumble or a rock that will give us refuge and security. He's either going to be a rock of offense or a rock that is a sure foundation. It all comes down to whether or not we're going to receive his righteousness or try to keep fighting for our own. So let's take a look at our text. We're looking at Romans 9. We're going to look at verses 30. Uh, we're going to go through 10.5, but 10.4, um, but really more to, to kind of give a hint of where we're going in January. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the end of 9 this morning. So starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so in, in, what we see is a transition, right? We, last week, we came out of a section that was, that was really highly confrontational because Paul was confronting a certain segment of his audience that was kind of pridefully sitting back and not only judging Paul and not only judging um, even other people in the church, but judging God himself, right? In, in verses 30 through 34, Paul is going to expose the central tension that is, in fact, causing 
all the trouble, right? Take a look at verses 30 through 34 again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that whole segment of, of the Jews divided the world into Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles were, were the dogs. They were, they were the unworthy ones, the unclean ones. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He compares two ways to attain righteousness, through achieving or through receiving. Two fundamental ways to try to become righteous through achieving or through receiving. The Jews had devoted themselves to obeying the law, which, which is exactly what they should have done, right? They, they were under contractual obligation, right? The nation of Israel had entered into the Mosaic covenant with God. It was an obligation on their part to obey the law. They had committed themselves to doing it, but they could not attain the blessing promised in the law, right? The law said, if you keep it, you'll be blessed. If you break it, you'll be cursed, and all they did was break it over and over and over again. They could not attain the blessing that was promised in the law. But instead of allowing that to do what it should have done, right? The whole purpose of the law was to awaken their need for grace. To show to them that they couldn't do it. That they couldn't do it through achieving. That they could only do it through receiving, right? It had to come by grace. But instead of allowing the law to do its proper work of preparing their hearts for grace... They twisted the law. They focused on those parts of the law that made them look good and, and um, applied those portions of the law to others that made them look bad. Instead of allowing the law to measure them, to show them their need, they started comparing themselves to each other. They started measuring their success by, by how well I do compared to you or how well I do to some fictitious version of myself in the past. Right? And as long as I come out on the better end of that comparison, I'm righteous. It gave them a sense of progress, of achievement, a quiet pride, and a sense of entitlement to God's blessing. In other words, they started to feel righteous. Now, righteous, righteous, the word righteous is such a religious word, isn't it? Um, growing up in California, it wasn't always a religious word, right? It was, it was back in the day when we talked about being gnarly. Uh, you talk about something being righteous. I mean, it was a way of like complimenting it. So that was a great non-religious meaning, but had absolutely no connection to the actual word. The word righteous, here's the thing. It's a religious word. You typically are only going to hear about it in church, but it's not a religious concept. It is a human need. Everyone has a need to feel, to be righteous. We all crave it. To have that sense that we are approved. To have that internal conviction that we are worthy. Worthy of being praised. Worthy of respect. Worthy of love. Worthy of praise. To be righteous is to be worthy. To be righteous is to be approved. To be righteous is to be right. 
The problem is we aren't righteous. <laughs> that's, that's the dilemma. We're not righteous, and we know we're not righteous. Every single one of us, even if we're not comparing ourselves to the law of God, falls short of our own laws, right? Every single person in here has their own set of moral expectations that they want to live up to, right? Ideals that they wish they could be. We fall short of our own laws, let alone the law of God, right? I value recycling, but I don't always recycle, right? I, I value economy, but I'm not always economic, right? I, I value integrity, but sometimes I lie, right? We don't even live up to our own expectations, let alone God's. We have a craving for righteousness, but we have a dilemma. We're not righteous. We're sinners. But that doesn't mean we don't try to make ourselves righteous because that is a human need. We are driven to achieve it, even though we know we don't have it. And the way we do that is by trying to convince ourselves that we are, in fact, right. If I can't be righteous, at least I can be right. And if I'm right, that makes me feel righteous, right? We are moral beings. We want to be right. And most of the time, if we're honest, we think we're right. And that causes us to feel really justified in judging others. Seeing people we don't like. Seeing people behave in ways we don't appreciate or do things we don't appreciate. And, and maybe, maybe they just think or act differently from us and, and we feel so superior to them. I remember back in the day, you know, we used to make total fun of, of you know, those parents who had their kids on leashes, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, yeah, they're worthy. we should make fun of them. Those are kids, not dogs, right? And I'm with you. I'm like, I've raised three kids, never had a kid on a leash, never did it. I have successfully raised three children without ever having a stray, okay? Didn't lose a one, which is awesome. I am now a grandparent, and I have three grandchildren, and I can envision a day when Lauren and I take our grandchildren to Disney, and I'm going to tell you something, there may be leashes involved, <laughs> Not because I want to demean my kids, but purely because I am no longer what I used to be. I can't have eyes everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, I will become what I once judged. But isn't that the way we do it? We're not, we don't just have opinions. We have moral convictions. It's not enough for me to say, I don't like that. I then have to take the next step and say, you are wrong for liking that. I can't just say that's not the way I do it. I have to quietly judge those who do it, right? We, we moralize everything. We are moral beings, and we want to be right. And as a result, we moralize everything. We turn our opinions into moral convictions, right? What to wear. Have you ever felt morally superior to somebody who was wearing the wrong thing? dressing in the wrong way, whose pants were too short when that wasn't cool, or too long when short was cool, or, or maybe they wore summer clothes in winter, or winter clothes in summer, or maybe they wear gym shorts year-round, right? You ever felt like, not only like, oh, that's odd, but that's wrong, right? We can judge anything. When to wear it, how to wear it, what brand to wear, what season to wear it in, right? We all have convictions, right? Some of us, it's recycling. We judge our neighbor every two weeks when we see that recycling bin sitting by their house and not on the street, right? For some of us, it's, it's a car we drive. There are certain brands we all know should be driven and others that should not. And every time I see someone driving that car, I think I know everything about them because I know what kind of person drives that car. 
And I feel perfectly content judging them, right? Hairstyles, how long your hair should be, how short your hair should be, how puffy your bangs should be, how close cropped the sides should be, how long your Kentucky waterfall should be, right? We, we will judge people. If you don't know what a Kentucky waterfall is, that's a very specific kind of mullet <laughs> where you shave all of this super tight and the back is just gloriously long, okay? Yeah, we don't just have opinions, we have moral convictions. If you don't believe me, try driving in the fast lane behind slow guy. You will judge very quickly. Why do we do that? Why do we turn every opinion into a moral conviction? Why do we feel like we have a right and in fact a need to continually judge right, wrong, approved, rejected, who's in, who's out? It's because we don't want to be just right we want to be righteous this is an external manifestation of an internal need we need to be approved we need to be worthy of love respect approval praise and so we create artificial ins and outs artificial ways so that we can feel approved because if we're approved and they're disapproved we feel like we're righteous and they're not the challenge is of course all of these comparisons are deceptive they exaggerate our virtue and they exaggerate or, or completely make up other people's vice anytime we start to congratulate ourselves on not being the people we despise we're in trouble we are now achieving instead of receiving followers of Christ. Anytime we find ourselves quietly congratulating ourselves, at least I'm not like him. We are now building our righteousness on achieving, not receiving, right? And so we can understand in many ways the dilemma of the first century Israelites, the Jewish people who had devoted themselves to obeying the law, right? The Gentiles, holy cow, the Gentiles, they were lawless. They just did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, right? The Jews had this law that restricted every behavior, everything they wore, everything they ate, everything they did, every way they did business, every way they interacted with each other and with the broader world. It was so encompassing that it controlled everything about their lives and they diligently sought to live it out. And then there's those Gentiles, those non-Jewish people, those lawless people who weren't even trying to climb the hill. And they achieved what the Jewish people had failed. They attained it. They succeeded where the Israelites had failed. Not because they were right. It wasn't because they were living right or doing right. They were made right. Not because they earned it, not because they merited it, not because they achieved it. They were made right because they received it by faith. It was a gift of grace. And because they came to receive the gift, they attained it. 
whereas those who show up to achieve it never do because you cannot earn what is given. This is a hill you cannot climb, an accomplishment you cannot win, a reward you can never claim. It can only be given by grace through faith. So the Gentiles showed up with nothing but their need. And with their hands open, with nothing to prove and nothing to offer and nothing to claim, were in a perfect position to receive what God was offering to them. Instead of showing up and saying, look at me, pay me, honor me, I'm here to impress you, they simply said, I have nothing, but I will receive the love you extended, the grace you offer through the person and work of Jesus. They had faith. They had faith in the one who made them right instead of faith in their own ability to become right. Do you see the difference? They had faith not in their ability to achieve. They had faith in the God who was able to achieve it on their behalf. They didn't show up convinced they could make themselves right, that they had an obligation to somehow impress God in order to receive through a ward. They showed up with absolute humility. And in humility, we're in the perfect position to receive grace. This is the great irony. The great irony is that so many want so badly to be right. They want so badly to be righteous, to be worthy. They have this inner craving that drives them to do and to do and to do and to work so hard, so hard at moral behavior, so hard at their grades, so hard at achieving, so hard at their jobs, so hard in their neighborhoods, so hard that they are continually exhausted. In trying to climb a mountain, they simply cannot climb. You want to be right so badly that you re- the results that you work so hard, but that's the very thing that is keeping you either from being right or experiencing the righteousness given to you in Christ. Your need to be right, to earn it, to feel like you've climbed the mountain and achieved it is what is actually keeping you from receiving the righteousness you claim and you crave. So what makes you right? What makes you right? What, what gives you righteousness? What justifies that you are, in fact, worthy? And I'm asking you this personally, not just theoretically or or existentially, like for you, what is it? Everybody does this. Can we go there? Everybody does this. What is it for you? Is it the hard, that you're the fact that you're the hardest person, worker in the room? Some of you are like, every time I show up, I may not be the best, but I'll be the hardest worker in the room, and that's what makes me right. Is it, is it that you're the smartest person at the table? I will impress people with my intellect. I am verbal, and I can put my intellect in such a way that that every time I step into a room where there's a context, I will find a way to carve out my space to make sure they respect me through the use of my mind and my mouth. For some of you, it it, it might be that you're good with money. You're really, really proud of your ability to make money, to handle money, to invest and increase money. And, and you spend all of your energy making money that you're not even that worried about spending. 
Because the money itself isn't the goal, it is the feeling of accomplishing, of, of conquering, of winning. Any of these resonate? You don't need to answer. There's a thousand others. It can be anything. You understand that, right? It can be anything from being helpful to being dominant. It can be anything from, from being a good friend um, to being so discerning that you have no friends. It's whatever makes you feel approved and better than others. That's going to be the spot where you are tempted to achieve instead of receive, to perform instead of rest, to try to prove yourself instead of receive the grace of God. Listen, the good news that Paul is expounding isn't just for the first century Israelites. It is for us. You don't have to live under the law. You don't have to, to try to harness the power of the law to leverage what you have to earn what you don't. See, we can, even though we are not first century Jews living under the Mosaic law, still try to live life under the principles of the law. The law says, obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. Perform and you will earn. Don't perform and, and, and you will be punished, right? That's the principle of the law. And if we approach life under the principle of the law, we are putting ourselves in a position of achieving instead of receiving. And the gospel is continually calling us to repent of our need to achieve in order that we might receive. To step away from our deadly doing. The dead works that we keep doing thinking somehow they can earn what they can never earn. We try to obtain righteousness when we can't. Here's the challenge. To receive God's righteousness, we have to repent of our own. Otherwise, instead of receiving God's righteousness, we'll stumble over it and even be offended by it. Take a look at verses 32 and 33. This is as far as we're going to go this morning, but I want you to see these verses. They did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul combines two separate pieces of verses from Isaiah. Uh, and it's not really important to go back to the original context. I think, I think what Paul is trying to do is, is draw on familiar um, and, uh, ideas from Isaiah to make a central point. He combines the two, these two ideas to make one clear point, that Jesus will either be a refuge that keeps you safe or a rock to stumble over that gets you wrecked. Jesus is going to be the dividing line of humanity. You're either going to find your refuge in him or you're going to be wrecked on him. You're either going to find your comfort in him or you're going to be offended by him. You're either going to rest in grace or you're going to fight grace and resent it. He not only divided human history with his breaking into human history, he divides all of humanity because he makes a central claim to every human. Set aside your righteousness and receive mine. Set aside your achieving and instead receive the grace that I offer to you because you have nothing to offer, but I will give you everything if you will receive it. 
Paul's arguing that Israel came upon the rock of ages, the rock of their salvation, and instead of embracing him and being protected by him, they tripped over him and didn't recognize him and so despised him and moved on. It's a little bit like when you ride a mountain bike. Anybody ride a mountain bike? Okay, I ride a mountain bike. Um, and, uh, and SIUE is great, right? The miles and miles and miles of trails around SIUE. You go over St. Louis, there's even better trails. But here's the thing with mountain biking. Uh, you learn fairly quickly that, that your temptation is to keep your eye on the front wheel because when you're riding, if there's a route or if there's a rock or if there's an obstacle, you have to know, like, do I turn? Do I pop up? Do I go around it? Because you're trying to go fast and you don't want to wreck, right? Here's the danger. If you focus on your wheel and the two feet out in front of it, you're not paying attention to what's coming down the path. You have to continually be looking at your wheel and reorienting yourself to what's coming. You have to practice this continual pattern. If you simply focus on the two feet in front of your bike, a big rock can take you off guard. Something that you can't navigate in the milliseconds you have between your seeing it and your responding to it, and it'll wreck you. I've had it happen. You get up, you brush yourself off, you wipe off the blood, you make sure your wheels are still true and your bike can be ridden, you yell at the rock, and then you keep pedaling your bike down the trail. And that's fine when the point is simply to enjoy a mountain bike ride. But life isn't an aimless ride. We have a destination. I mean, how tragic would it be if we miss the destination and simply continue on our journey? If we miss the very foundation of our security in pursuit of some other safety? If we miss true righteousness in pursuit of some illusion of righteousness? If we miss the true foundation of our security, our worth, our approval, and instead commit ourselves to trying to build our security on a foundation of sand instead of the solid rock of grace. When we try to find our security, our worth, our sense of, of, of value in being right, knowing the right things, doing the right things, being on the right side of issues, being on the right side of history, we're trying to attain our righteousness through achievement and we're building our security on sand when we repent of our need to achieve and instead humble our hearts to receive then we're going to find our security not in what we do but in what he's done not in our ability to be right but in the fact that he is right not in our ability to do it well enough or hard enough but in the fact that we don't have to because we rest in grace. And when we work from rest, it's not exhausting. When we work from rest, it is full of joy and hope and lightness. You want to talk about all the beautiful things that we want to experience on Christmas. Those things can be daily realities in our lives when our foundation is on the approval we received in Christ instead of our attempt to try to earn that approval by trying to impress ourselves, him, or others. Listen, God calls us into this process. So this morning, let me just close with this. If you haven't believed in Christ, I invite you to receive the grace of God. It is as simple 
as showing up and saying, Lord, you offer what I can't earn. Your word tells me that you, you died for my sins and you were raised again for my justification. You lived the life I should have lived, died the death I deserved to die and rose again so I could receive a blessing I couldn't earn. I don't know that I understand it all. I'm not even sure I believe every piece of it. I don't even know, but I want what you offer. It's enough to start there. It's enough to start there. But it's not enough to stay there. For those of you who are followers of Christ, you need to realize that God calls us to not simply one transaction of faith. Evangelicalism has done a horrible thing with this where they, they turn salvation into this thing where it's like, I had my prayer and I, I gave my life to Christ and now it's all good. We are called to live by faith, not have a transaction of faith. And what's gonna happen as you walk in faith, God is gonna continue to show you ways you are trying to earn what he freely gives and he will continually call you to repent to repent of your self-reliance, repent of your pride, repent of your need to be impressive, repent of your need to judge others, to find in those things that come out of you, opportunities to receive once again the invitation to receive instead of achieve, to rest instead of perform. As we celebrate the birth of Christ, let's celebrate the way of Christ. Let's not stumble over Christ. Let's receive Christ. And in receiving Christ, we will not be put to shame. All right, let me close this in word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we have this incredible invitation to receive instead of perform, to be blessed instead of earning a blessing, to receive instead of achieve. Lord, once again, I'm amazed by your humility and your grace and how you continually invite us into the reality of those characteristics that we might be humble, that we might be filled with grace and be gracious, that we might be filled with love and no longer feel the need to judge to judge ourselves or judge others but to simply be loved to stand in grace and to grow in that grace to grow in your love to, to, to grow in our ability to find our joy in your gifts and in your character to find our strength in your provision to find our hope in your promise awaken within us hearts that respond to this incredible invitation this morning Lord, as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.